Welcome to the Page Talks podcast. I'm Craig Harper, Executive Director for the Professional Association of Georgia Educators. Page serves 97,000 Georgia educators as a leading advocate for public education, as well as a valuable resource for member needs with legal representation, legislative services, and professional learning. In this episode, you'll hear from Joseph Grinney, a social scientist, researcher, and best-selling author. Joseph is a founder of Vital Smarts. Along with his research partners and co-authors, he developed the communications and relationship frameworks of crucial conversations, crucial accountability, and other concepts designed to improve the lives of individuals and the effectiveness of organizations. Four of Joseph and his co-authors' books are New York Times bestsellers and have sold more than three million copies. You can learn more at vitalsmarts.com and josephgrinney.com. Joseph recently addressed the virtual Gale Summer Conference on crucial conversations and social-emotional learning for adults in a presentation sponsored by Page. As a practitioner and facilitator for crucial conversations training, I can attest to just how beneficial these concepts are in stepping up to difficult conversations when there are opposing opinions, strong emotions, and high stakes. I hope you enjoy our conversation. All lasting happiness in life is a function of our capacity for truth, love, and connection. There's something in our souls that loves truth, that wants to hear it. I believe that a lot of us cite a fear of retribution really as a cover story for not speaking up because uh, really the, 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 the most immediate risk of speaking up is emotional vulnerability, and we hate that. And our general tendency in interpersonal relationships is to shy away, to be cautious if somebody's got power, to curry favor, to suck up rather than be honest and direct about things because survival is all that matters to us. I think one of the first things we all need to do to help us feel a little bit more responsible to step up to our crucial conversations is acknowledge that our real fear is more psychic and emotional and not career and professional. You can measure the health of any social system by looking at one simple thing, and that is the average lag time between when people see something and when they say it. So what's different about people that practice these skills? They tend to get listened to more, they're trusted more, their opinions are solicited more, they tend to get promoted more often, they're seen as more influential, and basically they're happier. I have never heard more F-bombs in succession in my entire life, but I have also never felt more intense love and commitment. Joseph, I want to thank you for joining me today. And looking forward to our conversation. Thank you for this time, Greg. First, if you don't mind, describe for us what Vital Smarts is all about and uh, maybe some particular emphasis on crucial conversations. Well, Vital Smarts basically has a mission to help change the world by changing behavior. We believe that social science has some of the solutions to the most vexing problems that humanity faces and the greatest opportunities we face, that that really it's not just about technology, ideas, new inventions, it's also about us changing our behavior so that we're suited for happiness. And so what we study is why people do what we do and how we can help each other change. And I would imagine that's a particularly uh, interesting field of study right now with this international and certainly national uh, I don't know if you'd call it an experiment, but this experience, a little bit more isolation, social distancing than we're accustomed to. Oh, I, I don't think there's ever been a time where the relevance of social science is more obvious, both in terms of how do you halt the pandemic? How do you deal with our isolation? But you look at what's happening socially around police reform and other sorts of social challenges. It's ultimately all about human behavior and how we can learn to live in a peaceful way with each other. Absolutely. So that makes me wonder, how did you get involved in this work, uh, however many years ago that was, and what led you to study this particular area of human interaction? Yeah, I've I've asked that a lot about sort of the primal question and wondered if some of it started in grade school being so small that I had to be hyper alert to the behavior of others. Maybe that's where where some of it began was in elementary school. But as I got older, I think my sympathies for the plight of others around me, those that weren't raised in the same sorts of circumstances I was, I I had parents who had real sensitivities to the needs and and concerns of others as well. And and that brought me to pay attention to to how how their lives are and and then ultimately to how people behave and how that affects how their lives go. I I began a kind of a project of examining my own life and seeing how I, I could make improvements. And when I encountered the field of social science, I realized there's this entire discipline whose endless fascination is why people do what they do and how to help them change. 
and uh, I found heaven. So it's been wonderful ever since. I have a mission. Well, that, that's excellent. And so what was your very first project that kicked off Vital Smarts and, and your cooperation and research with your co-authors? I think one that gave a special focus to what we do was a phone call I got on a Friday afternoon. We had just started Vital Smarts. We were doing kind of our regular training work and organization development in a broader sense, but got a call from a hospital on the East Coast. And apparently a couple of weeks before, they'd had a big tragedy there. A patient had been wheeled in where they performed a flawless amputation of a portion of the patient's right foot. When she aroused from the anesthetic, she shrieked because she was in there for a tonsillectomy. And uh, they asked us to come in and look at the behavioral side of this problem. What had gone wrong from a human, human behavior perspective? What we found was that that day there were seven people at a minimum who could have averted that disaster if they had done one simple thing. All of them had noticed some aberration. All of them had noticed something that they didn't expect, but none of them had said a word. So from, from the person who was asked to load tools on the tray for the surgery, who was surprised that a bone saw was being requested when they thought that all they were going to be operating on was the soft tissues of the, of the inner mouth. And so one after another after another, people looked at something but said nothing. And we started wondering, how, how often does this happen in a hospital? We started discovering in healthcare that people's avoidance of problems led at that point when the Institute of Medicine did its study back in the 1990s uh, to about 100,000 deaths per year, avoidable deaths, because somebody made a mistake and typically because those around them witnessing the potential mistake said nothing. Well, then we started noticing this in other industries. We saw in software development how large projects often come in over budget, over schedule, and with poor quality. And, and usually it's not because you have dumb programmers. It's usually because there are people who see problems early in the process, but don't express that. So the, the kind of result of 30 years of this research has led us to, to realize that, that literally the, the health of relationships, teams, and organizations is about the lag time between when people see it and when they say it. Our, our inability to get truth on the table rapidly in our relationships with others causes no end of mischiefs, mischief, right up to the pandemic that we see going on right now, right up to challenges in our schools and challenges in our cities, race relations. Right. And I've read some of the work you all have done in healthcare. You all have already done some work over just general uh, hygiene practices and have noticed significant improvements in reduction of MRSA and other kinds of just typical infections that get passed around hospitals simply because people won't wash their hands and be safe with some of their hygiene practices. Yeah, and that research has never been more universally relevant than today because literally every organization today is a hospital. I mean, we all think of ourselves that way and we're all in the infection control business. I mean, we should have been before because you've got flus and other things that go around through schools and office places, but now our attention's been drawn to it. And ultimately, that's a social science question. How do you get human beings in a highly reliable way to practice a few small behaviors that create an enormous difference in infection control? So, yeah, the, the, the research has led to applications in hospitals, but other workplaces as well that have made dramatic differences in safety. And I don't know if, if some of your research was primarily responsible for this or not, but unfortunately, my wife had gone through a number of procedures last year, and I was impressed every step of the way as we were going through different procedures in the hospital, how much checklist work was being done and verification with another healthcare provider and with her and sometimes with me about every aspect of the procedure. You're in for this activity today. You're expecting this to happen. They would just go down the whole list and it didn't matter if it was a surgeon that was standing there, the anesthetist or whoever it was, they would go through that list. And even though after a while you're thinking, you know, we've already covered this, you know, you know, her name, you know, her birthday, you know, all this stuff. But it was, it was also very comforting because I, I knew some of the things that have happened. And there's of course been stories across uh, in the, in the media over the last few years about things like the, the wrong thing being done. So it, it was, it was comforting while you're dealing with the stress of the, the, the issue that was bringing us there, that they were taking every step of it seriously. Yeah, we're definitely seeing progress. And uh, we hope that we're one of the voices that's contributed to that. And, and, and ultimately, when you, when you look at this from a principal perspective, what's happening in organizations, hopefully, is that truth is becoming more important than power. 
that one of the most corrupting things in hospital systems in the past has been that there was this deference to physicians or to administrators. And so people would weigh and measure how much they would express, even if what they expressed could make a difference in somebody's life or livelihood. Uh, today, hopefully what's happening is we're creating organizations where truth is more important than power. And, uh, you know, school systems are precisely the same. I guess those two things are connected. Hierarchy relationships and the fear of speaking up to somebody who can have negative consequences on your employment or promotions, all those kind of things. And and we hear a lot about the fear of reprisal or retribution. In your experience, how often does that actually happen versus the fear of something that could happen? Yeah, it it, it sounds like you're you're tossing me a softball here. (laughs) Yeah. The retribution does occur, but but our, our research shows it occurs far less often than all of us like to imagine. In fact, I believe that a lot of us cite a fear of retribution really as a cover story for not speaking up because uh, really the, 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 the most immediate risk of speaking up is emotional vulnerability. And we hate that. We hate taking a risk. We hate the possibility that somebody with power whose opinion about us we crave to be positive uh, might be disapproving in that moment. It's an unpleasant kind of thing. So I, I honestly, as even, even in some of the most authoritarian organizations, when we would go back and say, all right, give me evidence, show me where a body is buried. Right. The stories were often very old and very infrequent. And so I, I think one of the first things we all need to do to help us feel a little bit more responsible to step up to our crucial conversations is acknowledge that our real fear is more psychic and emotional and not career and professional. That, that, that's what's going on, and that's something that we can handle. We've done crucial conversations training in an organization, trying to get past some of those stories that have been in the organization where people, for whatever reason, didn't feel like they could step up. And it's a, it's a really difficult barrier to get past, no matter how often I might say, I really do have an open door. I really want to do, I really do want to hear your concerns. We can talk about anything you want to talk about. And until people have that experience, and, and many have to this point, it's still it was so ingrained. And it does make me think like you're, like you're suggesting, it's not just the organization. Oftentimes, it's just the way we are wired to always have that fear of, of something, and we build it up rather than tackle it head on. Yeah, here, here's our challenge in all of our relationships. And I'll, I'll make a comment about the relevance of this for healthy emotional relationships as well. Our bodies are designed not for happiness, but for survival. Our genetic heritage was designed just to make us conservative and cautious and risk avoidant so that we'd stay alive and pass our genes on to the next generation. That, that's all, all we're supposed to be able to do. So happiness is a bonus that you have to seek intentionally. It's not going to come by default in the way that you're programmed. So it's no surprise then that our general tendency in interpersonal relationships is to shy away, to be cautious if somebody's got power, to curry favor, to suck up rather than be honest and direct about things, because survival is all that matters to us. Now, for for all of us, again, listening today, we need to ask ourselves, is survival all we want? Right. If we want something more, then here's the principle. What we know is that all lasting happiness in life is a function of our capacity for truth, love, and connection. In that order, truth, love, and connection. You can't get to to love without truth. Uh, In fact, if you try to bypass truth and do something called love, it's just permission, enabling, and deference. It's not real connection. You don't get to love except through truth. And real connection is a function of, of both of those combined. So if we want richness and joy and happiness, we want influence in our organizations, the only path to do that is around our genetic predisposition to avoid these difficult moments and stepping into them in an authentic way. That's the really important message of Crucial Conversations. And so when, when people have had the opportunity to go through some of this training, when they initially access the concepts that are presented there, it can be really easy to think, well, this, this is a good way for me to understand how to influence others. And maybe I can win an argument because now I'm going to know how to conduct myself to really let them believe that I'm approaching this in a better way. Do you run into that? And how do you combat that with those that are going through the training initially? Yeah. And by the way, you know, it, it was a tremendous honor to discover that you're one of the folks that so skillfully teaches me these ideas. And I, I'm grateful to be in this, in this mission with you. 
it, it's important for people to have the right mindset coming in. Yeah, otherwise, you're, you're doomed to disappointment after you, you learn about crucial conversations. This isn't a set of techniques for tricking people into giving you what you want. This is a way of you being able to express the truth as you see it, but equally important, solicit the truth as other people see it. So the, the way the world works is uh, the eye sees everything but itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can't see me. I don't know the full truth. There's a whole lot of perspective that I don't have. And it's critical that we enter conversations not looking to win, but looking for dialogue, looking to expand the pool of meaning so we have the benefit of multiple points of view and then emerge with decisions that reflect not just my own brilliance, <laughs> but the collective wisdom of those that participate. If you can't approach it with that kind of humility, the book isn't for you. Yeah, and that's one of the things I will believe that I have communicated something very effectively and laid things out the way I, I meant, and then it will have no clue how somebody took my words because of tone or body language that I don't, I'm not even aware of. So I try to be real clear with those that I have regular interaction with. Like if something didn't seem like it matched up, you need to call me out and come ask me. I would much rather have an opportunity to clarify and come to a better understanding than for that misunderstanding to continue because so much of the the relationship issues we have as, as you present so well in, in this training and your research is it's just it's just a misunderstanding mm-hmm. it's a mismatch of what in, was intended to be shared and the way it was taken yeah you, 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 I, w- I want to comment uh, from this back to something you said earlier about having an open door policy in your organization and wanting people to express divergent points of view with you and w- one of the the sensitivities that we try to help senior leaders uh, adopt over time is realizing that all you need to do in order to make your people feel unsafe is nothing. People by default, when they're in the room with somebody that has substantially more power than they do, they feel unsafe. That's, that's how we're wired genetically, because we're designed for survival, not prosperity. We're not, we're not supposed to be happy. Happy is, uh, is an accident. And so when you walk into a room with a bunch of people that are senior to you, we're hyper alert. We're looking around. Who's smiling? Who's laughing? Who's with whom? Who's the power player? And do do they approve or disapprove? Did I dress appropriately? Should I sit here? Should I sit? All of this is going on in our minds. And so you as a leader, if you start realizing this, have to recognize that one of your responsibilities is to generate positive, affirming evidence that people are safe all the time. You have to be creating that to that kind of affirmative evidence for people. Otherwise, they're going to assume that it's not safe. So having an open door, that's nothing. Right. But drawing somebody in, sitting them down, priming the pump, actually saying half of the difficult message for them, but doing so in a way that shows them through your body language that you're okay with that. That's what starts to generate evidence that, that people might be okay putting a little bit more into the pool. And that's when you start to get to dialogue. And it does take a lot of effort to do all those things, but it's, it really is critically important and uh, for the good health of an organization, for people to feel safe. And safety is hard, I guess. That's what I keep hearing here. But it's not a natural state, so it does have to be fostered and grown and constantly tended to. One of the things you mentioned during the Gale presentation that we were fortunate enough to be able to, to share with uh, a lot of educators around Georgia, and you mentioned again today, was about lag time. And... So I guess describe what that means exactly. And then also, is that relative? Because I, I would imagine that lag time, depending on circumstances, could be a very short window of time to act. And other times it can be a little bit more reflective before you take action. Yeah, th- thanks for the opportunity to clarify that. So the, the principle is this, that you can, you can measure the health of most any social system. This could be a marriage could be a family, could be a classroom, could be a, an administrative team. You can measure the health of any social system by looking at one simple thing, and that is the average lag time between when people see something and when they say it, or when they feel it and when they express it, or when they think it and when they're able to discuss it. So, so when somebody starts to have a, a concern, when somebody has a point of view, the question is, how long does it take for the rest of the system to get the benefit of that? Now let's look at the uh, let's look at the counterfactual. If if people don't say anything, if people are holding it in reserve, if for example I think my bus boss cut me off in a meeting or took, took credit for my idea, and I start to harbor resentments and create injustices about that, the longer it goes for me to speak about that, 
we all know what happens in that in that lag time. I start to build the story more. I look for confirming evidence. I share it with other people. I create even deeper resentments. I start looking around for another job. I undermine them. I celebrate their failures. I, I'm miserable at their successes. This is the kind of garbage that starts to accumulate. Now, fortunately, that doesn't happen in marriages, though, right? Right. <laughs> you can go for weeks and months not talking about your concerns with each other, and everything will be just fine. We all know what happens in, the, in that social system. What about with children? What about with your direct reports? So the, the principle is this. Your job as a leader is to shrink lag time. If you focus on only one aspect of the culture of the organization that you are responsible to shape, and that is shrinking the lag time, everything else gets better. Trust improves, cooperation improves, accountability, individual performance, team and collective performance improves. So 30 years of research validates that this one variable, this one vital behavior is what we call it, is the driver of performance in most any aspect of how we look at social systems, organizations, achievement and mission. So think about it with, uh, with a child in a classroom. You've got some problem with the child and you think there might be some issues at home or whatever. The longer that goes unaddressed, the deeper the problems become. The benefit of this discovery is it gives us a focus as leaders of what we need to attend to most. Now, you ask, is lag time relative? Not really. You know, the, the longer the lag time, the more the mischief. But there are times where because of physical constraints, work constraints or whatever, it might take a day. It might take a couple of days. That's OK. The question is, is it as short as possible? Mm -hmm. I can tell you with absolute certainty that. There is a one-to-one -one correlation between average lag time in organizations and organizational performance, period. And so do we ever achieve an ideal of as close to zero as possible? No. But if it's right now two and a half months in your organization, we did a study once years ago looking at how long people keep things in a vault before they pull it out and deal with it. And, and the average was about three months. Hmm. Well, we tried to document how much it costs in politics and time wasted and rework and additional meetings and so forth. And it was an average of about $1,500 per crucial conversation uh, per, per week or so that this went on. And so you, you look at that cumulatively across an organization and boy, th this is worth managing to. Whatever you can do to shorten it, it's beneficial. So that's that's mostly from a leadership perspective. Is there is it possible for someone to lead up in that situation? Yeah, absolutely no question. In fact, most of our research in writing the Crucial Conversations book was uh, involving people who uh, were under three conditions. Number one, they had to deal with something that was really uncomfortable, really difficult. Number two, they were doing it from a position of, of less power. There was a power differential between them and the person they needed to address. And number three, the person that they wanted to talk with had a track record of being pretty defensive and difficult to talk to. Uh, th those are the conditions under which we wanted to say, all right, is it possible still to have a crucial conversation? Can you manage upward? Can you speak upward? And the answer was absolutely yes. Now, 100% of the time, no, but far more often than you and I think. And what we describe in the book are the skills and principles that make it possible for that to occur. So right now, so many organizations have had to go virtual. Is this something you're studying about what effect that has had on communication ability and connection and addressing things that do come up? Yeah, we, we studied that for years. And in fact, we're launching a new study this week uh, that will add to, to that research. What, what we find is that uh, when bandwidth decreases, the, the need for sensitivity to safety increases. And so what we mean by bandwidth, of course, is if you and I are face-to-face, -face, then we've got a, a full contact connection and all sorts of data coming at me about body language, where your hands are and your feet are, and all these other little cues that we can pick up. When it decreases and you and I are on a Zoom call right now, well, I'm, I'm only seeing about a fourth of your body. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and occasionally, you know, I'm not, not seeing a whole lot of other stuff that I'd otherwise pick up. If this becomes blind... So now we're just on an audio connection, or even worse, it's just an email or a text message as the bandwidth decreases. The need for me to be hyper-attentive to cues that show that safety is at risk and then attend to that increases dramatically. But you and I tend as bandwidth decreases to pay even less attention to some of the human factors and more just to the message. We just think, I'm just going to dump the message down. It's exactly the wrong direction to go. 
Right. And part of the Crucial Conversations framework is to call out when body language or tone don't match message. And that does get so much harder when there's no visual connection or you have bad audio connections in some cases. So yeah, it's getting much more difficult for people with that, I think. In general, I guess kind of even taking the pandemic out of it, but uh, include if necessary with uh, with this question. But So do we communicate as a individuals or as a society worse than we ever have? I don't think that there are difference in the species. Right. <laughs> that you know, genetically we're the same as we were 20 years ago, but, but we have more off-ramps. We, we have more technological temptations to avoid emotional vulnerability, and that's what makes us worse at it. It's not because we have to be worse. It's just because we have more cop-outs. So I, I remember, gosh, 30 years ago at the advent of voicemail, uh, being at the Newark airport at a phone bank. That was back when people used pay phones. And I was at a phone bank typing in my code so that I could make a call. And the guy standing next to me was apparently leaving a voicemail message for somebody much more powerful than him in his organization. I couldn't help but notice that he would leave the message and then he'd get all flustered and upset and then he would delete it. And then he did it again and then again and then again. And it was probably eight times. And this guy was just dripping with sweat by the time he was done. Well, we both know that Obviously, he was calling at nine o'clock at night because he knew the guy wasn't going to be there and he could dump a voicemail rather than deal with this issue. When what would have been actually more healthy was catching the person face to face or at least person to person on the phone. So voicemail created one of the first opportunities for us to avoid real contact with a human being and dealing with a healthy conversation. And all we've done since is invent even more options. Uh, It was interesting when Facebook came out that they made a critical design decision that you could give somebody a thumbs up, but not a thumbs down. Mm-hmm. There was no way to express disapproval for a message. And so I, from, from the advent I, um, of Facebook, it became a place for enablers and pouring gas on fires rather than a place of social control and, uh, and kind of normative feedback to each other. And we see the consequences of that as well. So our, our willingness to avoid even giving a thumbs down, you know, just giving thumbs up and pretending like we're okay and being passive aggressive, it's never been easier to do. And it's never been more obvious what the downside consequences are. And all the social media platforms also give people opportunities to express opinions without having fully reflected or discussed that with other people yeah. <laughs> as well. And it just seems that... It, Something that could be so good also has great potential, as we've all seen, for a lot of toxicity, too, because people don't have that connection that would moderate some of those those comments that you hope would happen if we were interacting face-to-face. Yeah. How would you say crucial conversations practices could really help educators be more effective in their role, whether it's classroom, support role, administration? What are some of the great benefits there? Well, as you and I were preparing for the Gale Conference, we talked about uh, making the case that social emotional learning was relevant uh, in education. And, you know, in my mind, I thought, well, duh, (laughs) you you really have to make the case. I mean, you look at all of the high risk, uh, critically emotional interactions that can happen. There are normal performance issues that have to be addressed between teachers and, and principals. There are peer issues between teachers. There are issues with parents. There are issues with children there. And all of these are high stakes. All of these are emotionally fraught. And so the the opportunity we have to improve the quality of our influence in every one of those contexts by ensuring that most of our crucial conversations go as well as they could. And by as well as we could, we mean two things, truth and safety, right? Truth and love. That's it. And and the two don't trade off against each other. The, The two have to both be maximized. So a lot of us operate under the misconception that sometimes the best way to help people feel emotionally okay is to compromise the message, to water it down, to butter it up, to sort of sugarcoat it, to put it in a Twinkie or something like that. When when the truth is that those two variables have to be handled independently. Your job is to make sure the other person knows you're in their corner. You care about their interests. You care about their concerns. You respect them. And at the same time, Be unflinchingly honest about your point of view. It's possible to do both. And when we start assuming you can't do both, that's when all of the problems occur. So the main message of crucial conversations is that you can do both in full measure. 
that it is possible to be completely uh, completely human, to completely graceful, completely caring, and at the same time, completely honest. And when you can achieve that, you have the pot potential of being one of the best teachers in the world, one of the best leaders in the world, and having the best relationships available. The people that you've seen do this really well, how are they viewed typically by their peers and any research you've done about that or their supervisors or others? Are they, are they seen as more transparent, honest, trustworthy, all, all those kinds of things? How does that come evident? You know, that's a really fascinating question, Craig, and it's one of the accidental trajectories that brought us into contact with Crucial Conversations. So our, our original work was uh, organizational change work. And as part of organizational change work, trying to diffuse new ideas and new habits across organizations, there's a population you always have to identify and engage. They're called opinion leaders. So we developed a systematic way of going into an organization, be it one of 100 or of 100,000 people, and identifying who are the opinion leaders? Who are the ones that people naturally turn to when they want the truth, when they need to figure out how to get something done, when they're not sure to handle how to handle politics here or whatever, the really trusted, respected people? Generally, they encompass about 3 to 5% of the population. So we would identify these groups, and then we would engage and work with them. And, and I began to notice, as we did, that there was something unique about them. They required less prodding to, to speak their truth. In fact, part of the reason they were so respected was because they were able to move ideas through an organization in a much more candid and direct way than others. And then we started to realize this wasn't because... They were the boss's son-in-law or daughter-in-law or something like that. It wasn't because of some special political connection. It was because of the way they carried themselves, the way they presented themselves. And that's when we started some of our research looking at how do they speak up in these moments? In the, in the opening chapters of the book, I describe a person by the name of Kevin who was sitting in a meeting with the CEO of the company and basically uh, shot down one of the CEO's cherished opinions. The whole room went silent, was just in agony and anxiety because they would expect him to get his head cut off. But instead, the CEO listened to him. He engaged him. He trusted him. And it was because Kevin had established a track record of safety with the CEO that, that made him feel open to this person's ideas. They didn't feel like a threat because his, his motive wasn't a threat. So that was really what set us on a course of trying to pay attention to these unique individuals. So what's different about people that practice these skills, they tend to get listened to more, they're trusted more, their opinions are solicited more, they tend to get promoted more often, they're seen as more influential, and basically they're happier. And, and you've seen that at every level of an organization, so it doesn't have to be the assistant principal in a, in a school, it could be a parapro, it could be somebody who's in the beginning stages of their career, it doesn't have to be the veteran or formal leadership position, it really can happen from any level of the organization. Yeah, top to bottom. And as a proof point, everybody listening, I, I'd urge you to do this little thought experiment. When we go into organizations that people would describe as oppressive and say, oh, you just can't speak your mind here. and The bosses don't want to hear the truth. We'd listen to that. We'd validate it. But then we'd ask the question, well, but is there somebody here who does? Is there somebody here who can speak up? And if so, who is that person? And we found, as you're saying, that they existed at every level of the organization. Sometimes it would be a a shop floor person in a factory that the plant manager so highly respected that that was the person that they would seek out when they wanted to know the real truth about what was going on. And they weren't just an informant. This was somebody who would also give the hard truth to the boss at times when they needed to hear it. Now, what, one of the things a lot of us don't realize is at the top of an organization, you might have a oppressive people who abuse their authority. That's possible. And I'm, I know it occurs. I've seen it. But one of the, the most, I, uh, uh, consistent complaints of people at the top of organizations is nobody tells me the truth. Right. They crave it. They want to know the truth, but they need to know, they need to hear it from people they feel safe with, people that they believe respect them and support them. And that's our challenge. And so when you, when you think about the things that are most important, I know that the entire framework is important if you're going to do this well and, and over time you're going to, you're going to improve your skills in this, but what's the most important thing to get right in a crucial conversation, even if you're doing some of it wrong? I think uh, three things are, are, are critical. Number one, start with heart. Um, make sure you get your motives right. You, you put your finger on this earlier, Craig, and if you come into a conversation wanting to win or save face or be right, if that's your motive, you're, you're screwed. <laughs> right. It doesn't matter how diplomatic you can be. 
that that motive is going to become uh, patently obvious to others pretty quick into the conversation, and you'll provoke resistance. Second, uh, master my stories. Learning to take responsibility for your own emotions in a crucial conversation is a critical part of us not getting into a blame and shame and victim kind of mentality when, uh, when people aren't approaching it the way we want. And finally, make it safe. Make it safe is the power principle of crucial conversations. When people understand that concept, they'll realize that their job is to create safety, not just for people below them, but people above them. And it's the, the ultimate power leveler. When people feel safe, power can be pushed out of the room and we can talk about truth and right answers instead of who's right. Those are all really, really important concepts for people to understand. And if we could commit to those things, it's amazing how much better our organizations could be for sure. And I've seen the difference those concepts work when people will commit to them and they, they are willing to have conversations often that have festered for years. They just never worry. I mean, the lag time's huge <laughs> in some of those cases yeah. because people are just used to having issues not dealt with and, and they just have to suck it up and deal with it instead of taking it on head on. And it, it's always damaging to the overall health and culture of an organization. Do you have a, a good example maybe of an organization that looked like it was helpless and hopeless, mm -hmm. but somebody stepped out and asked you all to come in and you saw some dramatic improvement? Oh, I, um, many, many, many. We've had the good fortune of working with 300 of the Fortune 500 companies, and we've now got uh, a cadre of about 10,000 trainers around the world that are teaching these ideas. And so people wonder, do they work in China? Do they work in Japan? Do they work in South Africa? Do they work in Latin America? Do they? Well, there's a hunger for them, independent of the culture. And so we, we've seen these kind of dramatic turnarounds. I think one of my favorite examples comes from, from South Sudan. There's a particular leader there, Muhammad Siddiqui is his name, who took on the job as CEO of South Sudan at a time when the currency had been devalued by 70%. What that meant was there was a 70% pay reduction for every one of his employees, literally overnight, the day he arrived. And so there was massive unrest and people frustrated and upset and wondering if the company was going to make this up. But there wasn't money to make it up because the revenues had been devalued too. And so how do you deal with this? Crucial conversations. He went into a place with battered morale, with a history of authoritarian leadership, and he started going into people's homes one after another. He found the opinion leaders to start with. He would come to their home. One was a maintenance worker, lived in humble circumstances in South Sudan. He took off his shoes. He brought his daughter with him. They entered this person's home. He told them how much he needed his ideas and help to be able to move the organization forward and to help people recover some of the salary losses that they'd experienced. It was overwhelming to this maintenance supervisor that the CEO of the organization was coming to visit him in his home. Talk about generating evidence of safety. Talk about generating evidence of mutual purpose and mutual respect. He did this one after another over a period of about a month. And within a month, he had engaged that workforce in a way that nobody had been able to do prior. The level of performance, the level of safety, the level of customer retention started to shoot through the roof. And Muhammad Siddiqui became so prized in his larger organization, an international organization, that he started to move quickly to the top of that as well. When you start paying attention to shrinking lag time, to, to helping people create opportunities to express things faster in your organization, everything gets better. What typically is the tipping point for somebody to realize What's going on when, when an organization brings you all in to work with them? That, I would guess, typically takes the leader making that decision since those, those decisions are usually made there. Is there even a common element when that happens? Well, unfortunately, the, the typical uh, entry point is pain. <laughs> and, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, you, you know, usually we wait, for, uh, we, we kick things down the road long enough that there's some acute crisis that has to be addressed. And so the company is facing chapter 13 or chapter 11, or you've got huge employee flight or customers eating their lunch or competitors eating their lunch or something to that effect. Uh, and it, but it doesn't have to be that way. There are a substantial minority of times when enlightened leaders come in and they can just see that there is future pain, that there's a sickness in the organization, that the lag time is too long, and they decide to pay attention to this. And I admire leaders like that, ones who also realize that the purpose of the organization isn't just to make a bottom line or to serve the customers. 
It's also to create an ennobling opportunity for employees to grow and learn. And if you're not doing that, you're failing. So even if we're getting away with it because we were first to market with some nifty idea and there's nobody competing with us, if it's an unhealthy workplace, you, you failed as a leader. And I, so I, I specifically admire people that, that use that as the problem. All right, kind of going in a different direction at this point. You've talked about the human condition and, and cultural differences don't make as much of a difference as just the way we're wired as human beings. Do generational differences play a part in the difficulty with interpersonal communications? Yeah. Or is that overblown? I think it's overblown. We've done some research on generational differences, and I think there are two factors that account for what you see different from millennials and Gen X and Gen Y and, you know, a, a, so, sort of some of the demographic distinctions that we all like to talk about. And the, the truth is that every generation has talked about those generational differences. And so, you know, when, when we were Gen Xers, when that first uh, was called into being as a, as a demographic descriptor, uh, it was called into being because... They were saying that the previous generation and this generation were so much different from one another. It was so narcissistic and self-centered and short-term oriented and yada, 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 yada. When we do the statistical analysis of those differences, I think they can be attributed more to availability of technology and to age than to generational distinctions. So if you take today's 20-year-olds and add 10 years to them, they'll start to adopt some of the attitudes of the 30-year-olds today. Add another 10 years, they'll start to adopt some of the attitudes of the 40-year-olds and so on. I think the, the third factor that is even more significant in all of this is what we talked about earlier, and that's technology. It's tempting all of us. The 60-year-olds now are avoiding conversations more than others and learning to text because, not because texting is just more convenient, but because it's more emotionally easy. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. And so we're all copping out. Uh, we, we're eating the apple. What do you wish you had known about this work with Crucial Conversations and Influencer and all the other research you've done 30 years ago when you got started that you know now? Well, I, I, th I think I've learned, and you and I will talk shortly about the project that caused me to learn this, but I think I've learned that while in the first 25 years of my career, I would have argued that an increase in skills will, is the most important factor and improving the quality of our crucial conversations. Through some experience over the last five years, I've come to conclude that even more important than that is, is not an increase of skills, but an increase of frequency. It's just throwing yourself into them. It's just doing them more often. You know, one of, one of the best ways to overcome a phobia is to just dive into it and generate evidence that the phobia is irrational, that it, it doesn't produce any real uh, untoward effects. I think our resistance to crucial conversations declines as the frequency with which we, we create positive outcomes for them increases. And, uh, and that's been humbling to me. The skills help, the, the skills supplement. But at the end of the day, it's about just saying, this is going to be uncomfortable and I'm going to do it anyway. That's why the start with heart part of the skill set with crucial conversations is so important. And you get that right and people will forgive you for a whole lot of uh, missteps that you might make in the conversation if you're showing respect and you do have a mutual per all those other steps certainly are very important but but getting your heart right to begin with makes makes a huge difference what gives you hope for our future and the ability for us to get along across political cultural and economic divides that's certainly a, a flashpoint for so many right now i don't know that hope is the right word for me right now uh, it, it's more of a sense of responsibility uh, i don't feel despair but I, I don't know which way we're going to go. There, there are so many temptations for us to, to live in, in a victim culture, for us to blame the other side, blame the other person, and not examine ourselves for our own moral defects and how we're, we're contributing to the poison atmosphere that we've got today. Uh, and, and all of us are contributing. Uh, we're all living in echo chambers. We're listening to people that are just like us. We're not reaching out to the other side. We lack sympathy for other perspectives when we do approach them. So I think crucial conversations are at the heart of what we need to heal. And I'm hoping that what you and I are advocating across the world will contribute some to that. But I don't know which way it's going to go. You know, with, uh, with all the technological temptations to avoid emotional vulnerability that, that you and I both take advantage of, I think our emotional maturity and our emotional muscle is withering rather than strengthening. And, uh, and I, I personally want to be part of a reversal of that trend. And it is really easy to get in your own camp and just listen to information that reinforces that viewpoint and perspective. 
Uh, one, one of the things that the Crucial Conversation training has us confront is no matter what the issue is, we've contributed some percentage to that problem and coming to grips with that and not give ourselves a pass and say, okay, maybe it's 5%. I mean, to really, really, truly look inside and say, okay, what, what am I doing that's causing this outcome? Because we do have a responsibility for the health of our relationships and our conversations and our leadership and everything else. So that, that's a big part of, of what we've got to get past right now. And people open up and, and see what somebody else's experience is. So if you wouldn't mind, share who your favorite K-12 teacher was. I always like to find out what your experience was as you were coming through, since that's what our focus is, is uh, K-12 education here in Georgia. So what was, who was your favorite K-12 teacher, or maybe more than one, and, and what made him or her special? Well, one of, one of my regrets I, you know, over the past few years with the availability of social media is I haven't been able to make contact with him. Uh, his name was Paul Tung, uh, T-U-N-G. Uh, he was a calculus professor. And I had the good fortune of being able to be in his class in summer school in 10th grade and then continue with him through 11th grade. And then I, I went off in kind of an unusual academic direction after that. But for, for about a year and a half, I came under his influence. He loved mathematics. He loved interesting problems and interesting questions. And it was impossible to spend time in his presence and not get fascinated by the questions that he had. He would also call out our, our moral weaknesses. If we were lazy, if we were sloppy, if we were, you know, he, he wasn't just patting our rear ends and powdering us. Uh, he'd let us know if, uh, if he felt like we had more potential than we were exercising. And that called to me, that beckoned to me. I learned to be a more disciplined thinker and a harder worker because of that man. And I just hope uh, sometime before he's gone or I'm gone that I have a chance to express that to him as an adult. Haven't found him yet. Yeah, well, good luck to you in, in that. And that, that is a, a story that we hear so often when we ask these questions of others or we reflect on our own experiences, that those tough teachers, the ones that hold you to a higher standard, the ones that expect more of you than, think, than you think you're going to be able to do for yourself, I think it's more easily seen maybe in coaching with athletics or other kind of extracurricular things, but it's those teachers that really make you step up yep. um, and meet those expectations that tend to resonate with us much later on in life. Yes, Anything I haven't asked about relative to K-12 and educators and what we can do or what we can promote that would make things better for them and the students they serve and the communities they serve from your perspective? I think just an intentionality about improving at this skill set is what I want to advocate, that this isn't just incidental to what teachers do. It is fundamental to it. It is what's happening uh, every day in the classrooms and with, with peers, with colleagues, with administration. So if we can shrink the lag time in a quality way, it will make a dramatic difference in everything that we care about. So now I want to come back and talk to you just a little bit about a project that you started just a few years ago uh, while you were doing your research on Influencer, and that's the Other Side Academy. And that's not directly related to what we talked about, but I think it's such an important project. It has such great relevance for so many people. I wanted to give an opportunity to talk about that project. Yeah, thank you. Happy to. So it's a school. It's called the Other Side Academy, and my wife and I helped start it along with a group of like-minded people about five years ago. Uh, our students are 100 people who've been arrested an average of 25 times. All of them had been rearrested and were on their way to new prison or jail sentences, but instead had the opportunity to come to the academy. The academy is free, costs nothing. Students live there for two years or longer, and they have to learn to be self-reliant. They, uh, they run companies to generate the income to support the campus, and that's the educational model primarily. It's learning to live in a healthy community, do a job, get along with each other, run companies in an effective way. Now, most people would listen to that snapshot and say, this is a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. You're going to have 100 felons move into a home in downtown Salt Lake City and then turn businesses over to them. What could possibly go wrong, right? Well, the magic formula at the Other Side Academy that accounts for the fact that there has not been a single dirty drug test in five years. There have been no acts of violence in spite of the fact that there are rival gang members there, that two thirds of the students that complete their two years ask to stay a third year voluntarily, even though they've now satisfied their commitment to the, the, the justice system. You know, the question is, how does that happen? It happens because the lag time is as close to zero as possible because there are rituals and practices in that house where students are exercising peer accountability, speaking up, holding each other accountable, addressing weaknesses and concerns, 
ruthlessly, bluntly, directly, consistently every single day. And when you and I live in a culture where people tell you the truth about yourself, one of two things happens. You either change or you leave. Occasionally people will leave because they don't want to hear that. But for the most part, people do. There's something in our souls that loves truth, that wants to hear it. And, it, and, and, and we warm to it when it's done from a place of love. And that's what happens there every single day. It's been miraculous to see students come in broken, beaten, longtime heroin addicts, people practicing prostitution, living on the streets for years, violent, angry, greedy people coming out the other side of this experience, changed human beings, literally someone they've never met before. And the entire reason for that is that the lag time is zero. You create a healthy community where people express the truth consistently, and it doesn't just help us improve outcomes, it changes our lives. Incredible work that you all are doing with that program. I watched an overview video that shows some of the, I guess, the, I don't know if you call it circle time or whatever it is, but uh, maybe every every day they have an opportunity to call each other out and share truth with each other, and they have to learn how to deal with that. And so many people that have gotten in that situation have manipulated others or been manipulated their whole life that they're, that they're not accustomed to, to even realizing what the truth is. And it was just a, a real eye-opening experience just to watch that and see how they interact with each other. That's exactly right. And as I, as I sit there regularly and participate in what they call games, uh, which is this feedback ritual that they practice, I have never heard more F-bombs in succession in my entire life, but I have also never felt more intense love and commitment in a, in a situation, in a, in a community, in my entire life. And the fact that you can do both, that they can be blunt and raw and direct with each other, but do so in a way that expresses love and commitment and loyalty to each other is absolutely remarkable. And that's what we all need to learn how to do. Not the F-bombs necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> well, Joseph, I really appreciate you spending time with me today. This has been enlightening and helpful, and I hope our educators and our listeners will appreciate this conversation, the insights you've shared, and uh, have a wonderful day. Thank you. Great pleasure. Thank you, Craig, and it's great to be working with you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Joseph Grinney and learning about some of the foundational principles that lead to better communications and relationships. If you're a PAGE member and are interested in attending the next Crucial Conversations training session offered at the PAGE office, a limited number of seats will be reserved for members. You'll attend the course at no cost to you and a travel stipend will be provided. Due to COVID-19, the next session hasn't been scheduled, but I'm hoping that will happen before December. Interested? Send an email to charper at pageinc.org describing what you hope to accomplish by attending the course and you'll be considered for selection. Good luck.